Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This week's episode of Pardes from Jerusalem is sponsored by Rabbi Mark Cohn in honor of Rabbi Leon Morris, president of Pardes, for his leadership and teaching, along with a staff that keeps Torah engaging and accessible. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rabbi Dr. Daniel Roth on the holiday Hanukkah. Please continue to follow us on Spotify or by visiting elmod.pardes.org. And now, Rabbi Dr. Daniel Roth. When I think of the story of Hanukkah, I am not only thinking about the holiday of lights or about the miracle of the oil or about sufganiyot and dreidels. I am thinking about the clash of identity groups a clash of civilizations, a civil war that took place in the story of Hanukkah, in particular as described in the book of Maccabees. And I think about our situation today, when I look around the world, whether it be conflicts of identity groups within Israeli society, conflict of identity groups within America or within Europe, or a clash of civilizations globally. And I can't help but thinking, how could the story have ended differently? What can be done to try to avoid such a clash of identities that ends in terrible bloodshed and war? So in this podcast, I want to contrast two dates on the Jewish calendar. One very well known, excuse me, the story of Hanukkah that took place on the 25th of Kislev, that is a story of discriminatory decrees that one identity group imposed on the other identity group. But then I want to contrast that to a different story, the 28th of Adar, a holiday that I'm quite certain no one has ever heard of, but it's on the Jewish calendar, the 28th of Adar, where there also were terrible discriminatory decrees by one identity group and against another, but it ends with a very, very different, in a very different way. And what can we learn from that to engaging more constructively in the identity conflicts of today? So let's start first with, <clears throat> excuse me, let's start first with the 25th of Kislev. Okay, and I'm looking here at the book of Maccabees, chapter one, <clears throat> verses 41 to 64, which tells of the king, the Greek king, um, trying to spread these decrees in an effort to turn everyone into being just like him. If you look at verse 41, then the king wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people. One people doesn't sound too threatening, right? Except... There are conditions for what it means to be one people and abandon their particular customs. All the Gentiles conform to the common command of the king and many Israelites delighted in his religion. They sacrificed the idols and profaned the Sabbath, meaning this secularism, okay, this Hellenistic um, Greek culture, according to the author and the translator of the book of Maccabees from the Greek, is a religion within itself. It's saying abandon all other types of customs and cultures and religions. And many Israelites 
um, delighted in his religion. They sacrificed to idols and profaned the Shabbat. The king sent letters by messenger to Jerusalem and to the cities of Judah, ordering them to follow customs foreign to their land, to prohibit burnt offerings and sacrifices and libations in the sanctuary, to profane the Shabbat and the festivals, to desecrate the sanctuary and the sacred ministers, to build pagan altars. I'm skipping, skipping. Verse 48, to leave their sons uncircumcised and to defile themselves with every kind of impurity and abomination. And that they may forget the law and change all its ordinances. And whoever refused to act according to the command of the king was put to death. And they sent this throughout the kingdom. And then he tell, then they, I'm skipping to verse 53, that certain Jews went into hiding. Okay. Um, and others, uh, obviously, um, obeyed and accepted it. Um, but anyone who was caught circumcising their children, doing Brit Milah, was put to death and they hung the babies by their necks. Very gruesome descriptions here. Um, so basically, at this part of the story, you have two options. Either you accept and you assimilate to the identity that is being imposed upon you, or you die. Then come along in chapter two, the story of the Maccabees, Matatiao, the famous scene where they come to Modi'in. The Greeks come, um, I'm in verse 16, chapter two, and many of Israel joined them, but Matatiao and his sons drew together. Then the officers of the king addressed Matateias, you are a leader and honorable and great man in this city, supported by sons and kindred. Come now, be the first to obey the king's command, as all the Gentiles and Judeans and those who are left in Jerusalem have done. Then you and your sons shall be numbered among the king's friends, and you and your sons shall be honored with silver and gold and many gifts. So he's saying, come and do this sacrifice to the idol. Right. And then Matatiao said, although all the Gentiles in the king's realm obey him so that they forsake the religion of their ancestors and consent to the king's orders. Yet I and my sons and my kindred will keep to the covenant of our ancestors. Heaven forbid that we should forsake the law and the commandments. We will not obey the words of the king by departing from our religion in the slightest degree. And then it says how a certain other person came forward who's nameless. And he said, I'll be happy to do the sacrifice and, and, and please the king's orders. And then when Matatiao saw this in verse 24, he was filled with zeal. His heart was moved and he and, and his just fury was aroused. He sprang forward and killed him upon the altar. And at the same time, he also killed the messenger of the king who was forcing them to sacrifice. And he tore down the altar. Thus, he showed zeal, his zeal for the law, just as Pinchas, okay, the famous story of Pinchas the Kohen, who kills uh, Zimri and Cosby in their uh, act of doing idolatry, sexual idolatry, in the story in the book of Bamidbar. Then Matatiao cried out in this in the city, "Let everyone who is zealous for the law." And who stands by the covenant, follow me. Me, Lashem, Eli. Right? 
like Moshe Rabbeinu as well. Whoever is on my side, I'm drawing the line of the identity groups. You're either with me or you're with them. There's no middle ground here. And all those who were fleeing from the, for the persecutions joined them and supported them. They gathered an army and struck down sinners in their wrath and the law and the lawless in their restraint, in their anger. <clears throat> and the survivors fled to the Gentiles for safety. Here you have a moment, not just of a war between the Greek Hellenists and the Jews, the zealous Jews, but also an intra-Jewish conflict between those that were more identified with the Gentiles, with the Greeks, with the Hellenists, and those that were going to be identified with Yao and the Maccabees and the zealous Jews. And this is a story that basically teaches us that in a moment of conflict between the different identity groups, and one is more powerful than the other, or when one gets more power than the other, they enforce their identity on the other sides. And then there, of course, there is tension. Either you give in, you die, or you kill and you fight. Not too many really constructive options in a nonviolent way. But I want to take that story and contrast it to another date that is far, far less known. But it was once celebrated as a Jewish holiday, which is on the 28th of Adar. Okay, and those of you who know me personally, I am not referring to the 9th of Adar. Okay, we're now going to create a new Jewish holiday, not of constructive conflict, but of nonviolence, which is the 28th of Adar. Okay, what's the story of the 28th of Adar? So we open up uh, the Talmud in Rosh Hashanah, and here... It's mentioned in a couple different places in the Talmud. The original story, listen carefully, the original story that I'm telling you is found in an ancient rabbinic book predating the Mishnah called Megillat Ta'anit. And Megillat Ta'anit is also the same place where the story of Hanukkah takes place that the Talmud later quotes of my Hanukkah. But it's also the source of numerous uh, festivals and, 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 and kind of Jewish holidays in one way or another, that the rabbis, the early, early rabbis, again, this is during the times of the temple, some of them had, had, had issued and saying, these are happy days. So this particular story, what is historical dating is in question, but we're reading it as a story. So it says as follows, on the 28th of Adar came glad tidings to the Jews that they should not abandon the practice of the law. That's the original one line in Aramaic, that was in Megillat Ta'anit. On Megillat Ta'anit comes what's called the commentary or the scholion. Okay, the Talmud is quoting it as one large text, which also is a very, very, very early body. And it tells the story, what glad tidings were this? What happened in the 20th of Adar that they didn't have to abandon the practice of the law? And here's the story. The Roman government, no longer the Greeks, now the bad guys. This is the, the next episode of the uh the you know the the new the new uh the new villain is the Roman government of the Greeks issued a decree that they the Jews should not study the Torah and that they should not do they should not circumcise their sons and that they should not profane the Shabbat. What did Judah ben Shemua and his colleagues do? Stop. Does this sound slightly familiar? It's like every Jewish holiday. 
They had decrees. They told us to abandon our ways. No Shabbat, no Brit Milah, no Torah. And now, what are your options? Well, we know what the options are from the story of Hanukkah. The options are you either give in, you die, or you fight to kill. But that's not how this story plays out. What did Judah ben Shemua and his colleagues do? He was the head of the Jewish community. They went and consulted a certain noble lady. In the Gemara, they refer to her as a matronit. She's a non-Jewish, well-respected Roman woman. All the Roman notables used to visit. So she has strong connections with the political and, 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 and elites of the other team, of the other side. So Yehuda ben Shamoa goes to this matronit, this noble Roman woman, and she says, come and demonstrate at night. The Hebrew word is important here. She says, bo hefginu belayla, the modern Hebrew word for demonstration that Israelis know very well, hafgana. This is the first usage of that word, to the best of my knowledge, in the Hebrew language, is her telling them, go out and demonstrate. Go and demonstrate at nighttime. And then what do they do? They went out and demonstrated at night. Okay. And um, Rashi explains that what does a demonstration mean? It means scream out in the marketplace and in the streets in order that the Roman ministers should hear and have compassion on you. Okay? That's what she's telling them to do. And then it says in the story, they went and demonstrated. Literally, they cried out at night. Saying, Alas, in heaven's, in the name of, in heaven's name. Lo achima nachnu. And they went out and they said, In heaven's name, are we not your brothers? They're saying this to the Romans. Are we not the sons of the same father? Are we not the sons of one mother? Why are we different from every nation and tongue that you issue such decrees upon us. Meaning, why are you discriminating against our identity group and treating us differently by, impla by placing these decrees upon us? That's what they chanted in their demonstration. And then in certain versions, it says, they did not move from there until the decrees were thereupon annulled. Meaning, they succeeded in canceling the decree. The Romans went back. They allowed them to do circumcision. They allowed them to learn Torah. They allowed them to keep Shabbat. They allowed them to preserve their identity group, their own culture. And that day was decreed a feast day. It was decreed a Yom Tov. That's the story. So, what do we do with this story? How is this story that begins very similarly to the story of Hanukkah, where you have the Hellenistic, Greek, and now the Roman, 
coming and decreeing and saying, we want you to be exactly like us. We don't circumcise, you don't circumcise. No Torah, no Shabbat. Be like everybody else. Accept my identity group as the only identity group is in essence what they're saying because that's the right way to go. And then you have this very different ending where at the end of the day, the Jews led by Yehuda ben Shamua are able to do and practice who they are and no one got hurt. No Jew got hurt, no Roman got hurt and they're able to do that. Why the story end differently here than the story of Hanukkah? So I want to point out um, a few different, uh, a few important lessons that can be learned from this. And I'll relate to that last question at the end about what was different. First, um, Yehuda ben Shemua here, as he receives the advice from this matronit, is, um, is doing a nonviolent demonstration. But we need to identify what is the exact methodology of nonviolence that he is applying in this particular case. And here I refer you to perhaps the most well-known, uh, early, important uh, conceptual thinking of what does nonviolence actually mean, nonviolence action in a political sense, uh, by Gene Sharp, okay, in his famous book, The Politics of Nonviolence, Nonviolent Action where he differentiates between three different types of nonviolence. He says there is what's called conversion, there is accommodation, and there is, where is it? Um, coercion. So there's conversion, accommodation, coercion. You can read this inside because you have the source sheet that accompanies the podcast. I'm going to argue what Yehuda ben Shemua is doing here is not just forcing the Romans to accommodate him. And he's certainly not coercing them. He doesn't have that power. The Jews don't have the power. There is no media. There's no social media that when you go out and demonstrate, you're really trying to wake up, not the part, not the political party that's forcing these decrees upon you. You're trying to wake up everybody that's not getting involved to join your side. But that's not what he's doing. There isn't anybody else. Instead, he's doing conversion, which Gene Sharp defines as the opponent has been inwardly changed so that he wants to make the changes desired by the nonviolent actionists. Meaning, when I heard you out there demonstrating, me as the Romans, when I heard you out there demonstrating and you saying that you feel that your rights are being infringed upon and that you're not being respected and protected in your identity? I was moved by that. That converted me into thinking differently. That's very different, says Gene Sharp, than a demonstration that goes out there that's really just gaining more political power to force the more powerful side, i.e. the Romans or the Greeks, to um, accept the change in the structural uh, uh, power dynamic of the conflict. Yehuda and Shemua is trying to convince the Romans, as Rashi says, that they should have compassion on you and then choose inwardly to cancel the decrees. So first, 
we learn here a very important lesson about the halachas, the laws, the principles, the theories of nonviolence, and especially of a of a of a hafgana. Um, as I said, this story is the first ever Jewish hafgana uh, demonstration calling for equal rights. Second point that I want to make here is to quote an amazing book, never been translated to English, um, but it's called Shalom Achim by Rabbi Moshe Rosenshin from the 19th century in Vilna. The whole book is basically saying, as an Orthodox Jew in the 18th, 19th century in Vilna, saying the Jews have started treating in the Enlightenment time period, the, the non, I'm sorry, the non-Jews have started treating the Jews in a more open way. Now the Jews have the obligation to start interpreting our laws and halachot to be more inclusive of non-Jews. And all the mitzvot of interpersonal relations, of Ben Adam Lechavarov, he argues, need to apply also to Jew, non-Jew alike. Shalom achim, peace between brothers. And all of humanity, he argues, can be of a brotherhood. And he opens this book, which is looking at it from a Jewish halachic perspective towards non-Jews. He opens it with this quote, this quote from the Talmud, where he says it is an obligation from the Torah and the books of the Talmud that the rabbis uh, and the rabbis to love all people as brothers and friends without distinction of which nation or religion they are. And how does he come to that conclusion? Because he basically says, if we go out and demonstrate that the non-Jewish power, the Romans, the Greeks, should respect us as equals and not force us to become like them, but they respect us to be ourselves and treat us equally by being different from them, so too do we have the responsibility to also not make that distinction and recognize that kulanu b'nei av echad anachnu, kulanu b'nei em echad anachnu, we are all of one father and one mother as a humanity and respect the other identity group as being different and allow them to flourish within that, uh, within their own identity. And that's the second point, that that's actually where I first, it was from reading this book that first this story caught my attention. Um, the third point is the role of the woman matronita, which is really, in my mind, very, very important. And I want to argue that the difference between the story in Hanukkah, where it ends in a bloody civil war of hundreds of thousands of people being killed by both sides, The story of the 28th of Adar, which ends with no one getting killed and the Jews still being able to uh, practice their religion the way they want to, is because of the Matronita, is because of this Roman woman. Why? Because this Roman woman is the third side. She's somebody that is connected to both groups. She, on the one hand, is deeply 
connected and trusted by Yudah ben Shamua. Otherwise, he wouldn't have turned to her. Clearly, whoever she is, she has a relationship and they have a, a, a trust relationship that she's able to give them advice that helps them. At the same time, it says she's very, very well connected to the political leadership of the Romans. So she knows them as well. It's possible that actually they're turning to her to mediate, to say, can you please go in and intercede on our behalf and meet with the Roman politics, politicians and help us. But instead, that's not what she does. What she does is she gives them advice saying, you got this. All you need to do is go out and demonstrate and speak within their own cultural language that they're trying to get you to all be the same. You tell them you're treating us differently and you're forcing us to all be the same. And here I bring you a, a quote from a UNESCO uh, article from 2003 that describes the role of elderly women in Africa that would go out when there was a moment of, of conflict and how they helped to resolve the conflict by saying, we are your mothers, we don't want war, we do not want bloodshed, do not fight with your brothers, they have sent us to sue for peace. And the role of women peacemakers, okay, in certain cultures that don't have power, influence, they have inspiration, and they are respected, and they're able to speak to a certain consciousness and, 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 and value system to transform people into being more nonviolent, not by forcing them to be nonviolent. And I want to argue that actually she is playing a role similar to that, but instead of her mediating, she actually ends up teaching them how to engage nonviolently directly with the more powerful Roman government. So what do we end up learning from this? First of all, as I said in the beginning of this podcast, we are in a world right now where the conflicts facing us are not between different states, they're within different states, between different identity groups. And if we want to try and avoid what happens in the story of Hanukkah, of a clash of civilizations, where you're either with us or without us, we've got to find creative ways to towards nonviolence. And if you think about whether it be what's happening in Europe, between especially the French, where their secularism is a form of religion, and the Muslim world, not just within France, but around the world, or you think about what's happening in America, between liberals and conservatives, or pro-Trump, anti-Trump, or you think about what's happening in Israel between religious and secular, or Israelis and Palestinians, people are finding themselves very deeply stuck in conflicting identity groups with very little understanding of what do we do with this. And what we learn from this story of the 28th of Adar is the key is finding the insider third parties. This woman who was connected, who could culturally translate to the Jews how to communicate to the Romans to persuade them that she's trusted by both parties. This is the difference. There was no third side to help mediate the conflict. 
who understood and was trusted by both sides in the Hanukkah story. Who's the third side today? I will give a plug for my forthcoming book that, please God, will be coming out in the spring 2021 called Third Party Peacemakers in Judaism, Text, Theory, and Practice, where I describe and uh, talk about this story in depth of the role of the Matronita as a role of a woman peacemaker in the Talmud. But I'll also share that the work that I do today um, at Mosaica, where I uh, direct a center of mediation, and in particular, we work in insider mediation. How can religious leaders, Jewish religious Zionist rabbis, working with Islamic movement connected to the Muslim Brotherhood globally, how can they work together to help mediate and avoid moments of violence and build a religious peace so that it's a question of are there third parties that are connected to the parties in conflict that have influence over them, that understand them, that work together to say, let's not have this clash of identity. Let's find a way forward that will allow for the Denle groups to exist, to have their core values intact, and um, in a nonviolent way. And there's a need for third parties to help mediate the conflicts in Europe that are deeply connected to the Islamic world and deeply connected to the secular world of the French culture. And there's a need for you, the listener, who many of you are going to be in the United States, to step up and help in mediating the identity conflicts and the clash between the uh, between all the different identity politics happening in America today. Um, and that's my charge for you on this Hanukkah, is to look at that story, to find it as a holiday of light, and to recognize that part of the darkness is when you have two groups who are so divided and there's nobody in between that is trusted and understands them to find a nonviolent solution out. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcast today. You can also subscribe to any of our other podcast channels by visiting us on Spotify or online at elmod.pardes.org. Tune in next week to listen to Rabbi Alex Israel as he discusses Parashat Miketz. Thanks for listening.